Well, to start with here this morning, I want to mention something that is an unfortunate uh, characteristic of the world we live in, and that's the presence of identity theft. It is an ongoing threat in our world. Identity theft is when someone uses your personal information without your permission to commit fraud or to commit some other crime. Perhaps you've experienced identity theft. I have a couple of times. If it's ever happened to you, then you know what a hassle it is at the least, and it can also potentially be financially damaging. But as bad as that is, I want to talk about a different kind of identity loss, even one more tragic than losing money. It's the reality that many Christians have lost the understanding of their biblical identity. If you are a true believer, a follower of Christ, you do have a unique identity, and it is crucial that you understand it and remember it. Otherwise, you will not experience the victory over sin in daily life that is possible, and thus you'll live with a sense of defeat and with a lack of assurance of salvation and even with a lack of purpose in life. So this idea of biblical identity is pretty important stuff, and it does connect to the book we started going through on Sunday mornings, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. As a quick review, so far in chapter 1, we have seen that the authors, the Apostle Paul and his co-workers, were grateful to the Lord for the believers in the city of Thessalonica. More specifically, in verse 2 of this first chapter, we found the regular occasion of gratitude. They expressed this gratitude in their regular times of corporate prayer. Second, we noted together in verse 3 the spiritual motivation for the gratitude. They were grateful to the Lord for what they saw in the lives of the believers. They were grateful to the Lord for the elements of authentic Christian progress seen in those believers in Thessalonica, such as their active faith, their tireless love, and their enduring hope. And then in verse 4, we noted the ultimate ground for gratitude. Verse 4 reads, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now we found We find Paul conveying the same thing in the second letter to the believers in Thessalonica, what we know as 2 Thessalonians. He says this in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning. So I mentioned to you that in our verse 4, The word choice and that word chosen in 2 Thessalonians, they both are from the same Greek word group that yields our English terms election and elect. So this was the ultimate basis for Paul's gratitude to God, the reality of their election. And this reality was a significant aspect of their Christian identity. And that is still true today. 
Now, as I explained last time, the doctrine of election expresses the truth that underlying the human response to the gospel message is the sovereign grace of God who takes the initiative to move the human will so that it willingly surrenders to Christ as Savior and Lord. And our election took place in the very mind of God long before time began. We saw that in the verse from 2 Thessalonians. God had chosen them from the beginning. Ephesians 1 verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Election took place in the very mind of God before time as we know it, the universe as we know it, existed. So this is an aspect of the identity of true believers. True believers are the ones who are distinguished by divine grace. They are the chosen ones. They are the elect. Now, another biblical term I called to your attention connected to this subject is predestination, also found in Scripture. Ultimately, the words election and predestination both refer to the same doctrine, yet they do teach and convey slightly different ideas or nuances. The Greek term translated predestined means to uh, choose beforehand or to predetermine. And the root part of that word, destined, refers to the end goal, the elective purpose. So to elect on one side means to make a choice, and to predestine on the other side means there's a goal of that choice. And we find God's predetermined goal in Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, I've already read, I'll read it again. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. What this says is the goal of his choice was to have a group of holy adopted children, a family. Now, last time I went through many verses in the Bible that teach and support the doctrine of election or predestination. And it's because of those many verses I mentioned that you cannot say that you don't believe in the doctrine of election. You can't say that. You can say, I don't completely understand it. It's perplexing to me. I can't connect all the dots. But you must believe in it, for the Bible teaches it. I also reviewed for you the history of where opposition to the doctrine primarily came from. I mentioned, first of all, a man named Pelagius, whose teaching was known as Pelagianism. And then later, there was teaching of a man named Jacob Arminius, known as Arminianism. Among other errors, these men either denied or minimized the Bible's teaching on the total depravity of man, the total inability of man to do anything to save himself. In other words, they did not accurately understand the Bible's teaching that all people are born spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 makes that very clear. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the state of every individual born into the world. Dead in trespasses and sins. 
Now, since those men and their followers did not affirm man's true spiritual state, they ended up then concluding and teaching that individuals are capable of choosing on their own to become followers of Christ, to be saved. This is known as the erroneous teaching of a free will, something not actually found in the Bible. Don't get me wrong, man does have a will, and when I say man, I mean mankind, men and women, boys and girls. We do have a will, but man's will is not completely free. It functions only in accordance with man's spiritually dead nature. The will functions according to the nature. I could illustrate that with my son's cat. As you know, we are taking care of my son's cat until he returns home soon. The cat's name is Boots. Boots has a will, and he basically chooses to do whatever he wants to do, but he will always and only choose according to his nature. He's a cat, and therefore he can only make cat choices. He can't make the choices of a squirrel. He cannot make the choices that a bird would make. That's not his nature. In fact, his nature, I'm sad to say, is that he is a serial killer (laughs) of birds. And he frequently carries out that impulse and then brings that bird into the house as a trophy to show Pam and me what he has accomplished. On the way to coming to church this morning, I had to dispose of a body that was found in the living room and vacuumed up quite a number of feathers. He can only make cat choices. A dog can only make dog choices. And such is the case with man. He's free to choose, but only according to his nature, his spiritually dead nature, which is why Scripture asks this question in Jeremiah 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? And the obvious answer is no. And the point is man cannot change his nature. So as a totally depraved individual, natural man will always and only make spiritual choices according to that fallen nature, which means he can only choose not to truly commit his life to the Lordship of Christ. To say it differently, man's will is in bondage. Instead of being free, it is in bondage to his sinful nature. He can certainly choose things outside the subject matter of spiritual things freely. He can choose what kind of pizza he wants to eat. He can choose what kind of car to drive and so forth. But in the spiritual realm, he will on his own always choose to go his own way in rebellion against God at some level. Psalm 14 says this, and so Paul repeats it, quotes it in the, Old, in the New Testament in Romans chapter 3, 
verses 10 through 12. Listen. As it is written in the Old Testament, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. This is why Jesus taught that a person must be born all over again. A person must be born a second time. John chapter 3, Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus at night when Nicodemus came to him to ask some questions. Jesus said this, John 3 verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the term born again literally means born from above, a spiritual birth. Verse 6 of John 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then he went on, Jesus went on to say that this new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And he illustrates that point by using the example of the wind, John 3 verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. We can't control it. So is everyone born of the Spirit. So God, by His Spirit, gives spiritual life to His elect, and that happens at His sovereignly appointed time. We don't control that. And like the wind, not only do we not control it, but we can see the effects of it. And the most immediate effect is that this regenerated person who now has spiritual life believes the gospel message and comes to Christ in faith and repentance. Against their will? Not at all. Because when God graciously regenerates someone, He changes that person's heart. He frees that person's will so that they do willingly choose to follow Christ. Therefore, though it is true that we believe the gospel, absolutely, and embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, yes, we can take no credit for it. We can take no credit for any aspect of our salvation. Every aspect of it is a gift from a sovereign God. And yes, there are certainly many today who reject this teaching that I'm sharing with you. But they're not the first ones. Pelagius and Jacob Arminius were not the first ones. Listen to what Jesus says in John 6, verse 65. He makes the point about God's sovereignty and salvation and says in verse 65 of John 6, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And then verse 66 gives us the result of that. People said, oh, I get it. I embrace it. This is wonderful teaching. No. Here's what it says in verse 66. As a result of this, many withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Did not accept it. This helps explain really why Christ taught that when someone comes to him, they need to come to him as a child. And that is a way of capturing the idea of humility. We come humbly, acknowledging that we can do nothing to save ourselves. 
we come humbly acknowledging that we're spiritually bankrupt on our own. So yes, this is important. All believers need to come to the place where they don't just cope with the doctrine of election. All believers need to come to the place where they grow to praise God for it with a full heart. Well, last week at the conclusion of the sermon, I began answering some of the common questions and some of the common objections that are put forth concerning the biblical doctrine of election. But I was only able to deal with two of them. The first one was, I asked the question that some asked, number one, is God unjust, unfair? And the short answer is no. The longer answer is, read Romans chapter 9. The second question, an objection I dealt with, was this. Well, predestination, belief in that breeds pride in people and self-congratulation. In other words, because you, you have this heady understanding of this doctrine. No. It actually ends up resulting in the opposite. Belief in this results in humility and gratitude to the Lord. So today I want to complete the list and then possibly make some final comments back on verse 4, 1 Thessalonians. So in our list of questions and objections, we're now at number 3. Number 3, there are those who would say this, predestination destroys moral effort. Belief in predestination or election destroys moral effort. In other words, someone might say, well, if God has chosen us ahead of time and our eternal destiny is a done deal, well, then it really doesn't matter how we live. We can live any way we want. It doesn't change anything. Actually, the opposite is true. Our election is the very foundation of a life of holiness. I'll read it again, Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose us in him. It goes on to say, to be holy and blameless in his sight. So once we really come to grips with this aspect of our identity that God has chosen us, then we are prompted then to ask, well, then what kind of lives should we live for his glory out of gratitude to him? Frankly, this line of thinking that it doesn't matter how we live depreciates or ignores, once again, an important doctrine, the doctrine of regeneration, the new birth. As if salvation is just a decision we make. As if salvation is just a, a blip on the screen of our lives. You know, It's not. Instead, at the moment of our new birth, that is, by God's Action by His Spirit at His appointed time, we're given a new heart, a new nature. So we don't continue to want to live in sin as if it doesn't matter. We do sin. But our moments of sin, because of our new orientation, our moments of sin will always be broken by confession and repentance and even the resolve once again to live out our identity with the Lord's help. Number four, predestination, belief in that, weakens evangelism and prayer. Belief in the doctrine of election, that weakens evangelism and prayer. In other words, well, there's no point to preaching the gospel then. There's no point to praying for the loss if God has predetermined everything. I'll say more about that than what I'm about to say, but let me just start here. First of all, 
Do we really need any other motivation to evangelize and to pray besides just obedience? The fact that God in his word tells us to do that? Are we saying that obedience and pleasing the Lord by obeying him is not enough? But beyond that, that kind of thinking indicates the doctrine of election has been misunderstood. The fact is, it is God's sovereign election that assures success in evangelism. God has given us the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel. And he puts it in the terms of fishing. We're to be fishers of men, but not the kind of fishing you might think of in our world where we've got a rod and a reel and and a hook and we're trying to catch a bass. No, in their day it was done by nets. That's the imagery. God has given us the responsibility of casting the gospel net. And God's elect will be caught at his appointed time. It's guaranteed. Now, obviously, we've seen that the Apostle Paul believes in the doctrine of election. We see it in 1 Thessalonians. I've read other scriptures that he has written. And yet, in Paul, you find this burning evangelistic zeal as well. Think about Romans 10, verse 1. And this is in a chapter where... He's already been talking about God's sovereignty and salvation in chapter 9, that Esau, God says, Esau I hated, Jacob I I loved. That was my choice. And it's not dependent on man who runs or wills. That's found there as well in Romans. In Romans 10, he's talking about his burden for fellow Jews. Here's what he says in Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Didn't destroy his evangelistic zeal or his desire to pray for the lost. It was a proper understanding of God's election, electing purposes that led Paul to a strong evangelistic spirit. In fact, this was the very rock on which Paul took his stand when he would face all kinds of opposition, discouraging opposition in his ministry, even times of apparent fruitlessness in his ministry. There's one example of that in Acts chapter 18 concerning the city of Corinth. I mentioned to you he was in Corinth when he wrote this letter back to Thessalonica. He went there to proclaim the gospel, and it didn't go so well. Not at first. There was opposition. People weren't responding. So he says, I'm out of here. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, the Lord came to Paul in a vision at night and told him this, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Get back in there, Paul. Here's what God said, for I have many people in this city. They were there. God's elect. Go cast the gospel net. The point is that God's eternal choice ensures that some men and women who hear the gospel through witnessing and preaching and due to our prayers will respond in faith. Success in that is not dependent on our cleverness. It's not dependent on how articulate we are about the gospel. It's not dependent on the incredible illustrations that we come up with. It's certainly not dependent on manipulating people or coercion. It's dependent on God's sovereignty. So we just need to endure in faithfully casting the net. 
proclaiming the good news. 2 Timothy 1.10. Listen to how Paul says it here. This is one of my favorite verses on this topic. He says, I endure all things. And he's about to make a statement about his gospel ministry. I endure all things for, for my gospel ministry. But he doesn't say it that way. I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. I'm out there casting the net to catch God's elect. Listen, there is an expression in church history that's been passed down, and we say it sometimes, that, and you've likely heard it, but it, it captures all of this. God's sovereignty in ordaining the end of all things. The expression is this, God ordained the end but he's also ordained the means to reach that end. And the means that he has ordained to reach his ordained end is our proclamation of the gospel and our prayers. But just think about this. If someone doesn't agree with all this, if someone this is, is really Arminian in their thinking, honestly, they should question why they evangelize the lost. They should question why they pray to, to God for the lost, because the bottom line sort of thinking that runs through their system is that God has already done all he can do. It's now up to the person. So if God has done already he can, and it's now up to people to make a choice, then why plead with God? Plead with the people? What a burden Arminians carry with them when it comes to evangelism. Listen, holding to an Arminian view leads to many sleepless nights. In contrast, affirmation of the sovereignty of God in salvation promotes confidence in prayer and evangelism. That is why the greatest preachers and evangelists in the history of the church have believed in the biblical doctrine of election. Great names in church history like John Bunyan, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, the great missionary William Carey, the preacher Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones in more modern times, R.C. Sproul, John Piper, John MacArthur, and so on and so on. The bottom line is this doctrine is part of orthodox Christian teaching. And just remember something about evangelism and prayer, the reality is that many people who deny the doctrine of election are still failing to evangelize and to pray. The issue is their heart. Number five, belief in this decreases assurance, you know, assurance of salvation. The short answer is nope. It really is just the opposite of that. Affirmation of God's sovereignty and the doctrine of election increases assurance. It is much more assuring to know that God is the sovereign author and finisher of our salvation and that being saved and staying saved does not depend on us and our performance and even the, the, the quality of our faith and our trust. Look at what made Paul confident about what was going on in Philippi. He wrote them a letter as well, the book of Philippians. And he expresses in chapter 1 his confidence about what was going on in their lives, but it wasn't in them. 
Philippians 1.6, his confidence was in God's sovereign work. Here's what it says. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is the one who conceives the work. God is the one who continues the work. And God is the one who completes the work. There was a time I was Arminian in my thinking. And when I was Arminian in my thinking, I struggled with assurance at times. A struggle that is common amongst those who believe in a free will. But once I began to grow in my understanding of God's sovereignty and to recognize then the evidence of his work in my life, my trust in him began to grow. I mean, if there's any evidence of love for the Lord in your life, any evidence of love for the truth in your life, any evidence of love for other believers and for the church and for ministry, then it's only because God began a work in you. And just as we read in Philippians 1.6, what he starts, he completes. Grow in your understanding of that. It is our affirmation of God's sovereignty and the doctrine of election and so forth and maturing in our understanding of it that helps our assurance grow. It's worth reading another verse from Romans here. I read it last time, Romans 8 verse 30. The golden chain of theology. Listen to this again, Romans 8 30. Whom God predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And I mentioned to you that it's a chain. You can't break that. If if an individual is in one of those, they are in all four of the terms. That word called is God's effectual call, the doctrine of regeneration, making someone who's spiritually dead now spiritually alive, giving them a new heart, giving them life. Justified, that's a a summary term for conversion, for our faith. We, We trust in Christ and we have a standing before God. We're justified before him. And I'm reading it again because I want you to notice that when Paul wrote that, the Spirit inspired him to put all four of those terms in the past tense. And that's interesting because glorify, glorification, that hasn't happened in our lives yet. That's in heaven. It's written as if it's past tense. There are others who are going to be justified, but it hasn't happened yet. It's in the past tense because it's a way to articulate it from God's perspective that these are all completely accomplished facts in the lives of his people. Our destiny is in the hands of the all-wise, all-powerful God of heaven and earth. Our relationship with him began in eternity past. It extends into eternity future. We have a destiny that is assured. Number six, and this is a little bit of a convoluted way of saying it, but there are people who say things like this. Predestination, election, implies... That there are going to be some who want to be saved, but God won't save them because they're not the elect. And likewise, there'll be some who are saved, and they'll be dragged into the kingdom against their will, kicking and screaming because they don't want to be saved, but they have no choice. Neither of those pictures will ever exist. 
First of all, don't forget man's total depravity and total inability. Someone who's not elect does not have a desire to be saved, does not want to live in submission to Christ, and never will desire it. Oh, they may want their own definition of salvation. Salvation by a God of their own design and definition, but that's it. In contrast, all who are the elect do repent of their sins and submit to Christ, and they do it willingly and joyfully. Second, and connected to that, don't forget the significance of the doctrine of regeneration. And I say this a lot in classes I teach, that we we minimize the the doctrine of the new birth. This is so crucial. It's a linchpin in all of this. When God saves someone, he regenerates them. He gives them new life that was not there. And then they have a a new orientation in their inner man, no longer oriented toward Adam, but now toward Christ. They have a new nature, new desire. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. So no one comes kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. And anyone who desires to be saved, God will save and save them forever. For that desire is evidence of their election. Listen to the words of Jesus, John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Number seven. But doesn't God love the whole world? According to John 3.16, the answer to that is yes. And there's a sermon on the website if you just want to hear more development of what that verse is actually saying. But John 3.16 means that God loves the whole world of lost humanity. That verse is just not a verse making a statement about individuals. He has a love for the world of lost humanity, and it's even manifested in the world through what we call is common grace. I mean, the very fact that the lost don't die in any moments of their sin or the fact that they can carry on with their lives and get married and have children and have careers and so forth and enjoy life, God's common grace. But God's love for his elect is different. That's why Paul said this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.10. He says on one hand, he's the savior of all men meaning he's the only savior for the lost world. It doesn't matter what nation a person comes from, their gender, their intellect, ethnicity, none of that matters. He is the savior for all types of people, comma, especially of believers. There's common grace for the whole world, but something different for believers. He loves the whole world of lost humanity in a general and temporal sense, but he loves the elect spiritually and eternally. Number eight, and I have a hundred of these, so I've got to go fast. You know what I do. I, I tell you that, so then you'll have hope when I tell you there's only ten. Number eight, number eight, but the Bible seems, therefore, to be teaching two different things the sovereignty of God in election, and the responsibility of man to believe. How can it teach both? How can that be? The bottom line is, yes, the Bible teaches both. And there is a tension there, and the tension is real. 
There is a famous illustration that's been passed down. No illustration is perfect, but it does sort of capture the idea of two parallel thoughts. It's the illustration of, of a railroad track. We have railroad tracks around here. They're not real ones anymore, you know. Trains don't come through here. I've learned, by the way, after being here for a couple of years, when I drive in other cities that have railroad tracks, don't get lulled to sleep in those other cities. They have real ones. Okay, the one at the mall, you know, is dead. It's funny, though. You stop there at the stoplights, and people still don't want to park on top of that railroad track. You know, there might be a, a phantom train that just some, might come through there at some point. But the illustration is you can stand in a railroad track, live one or dead one, doesn't matter, and the two rails, if you stand there and look down, it looks like they meet. But if you walk down toward that, it never does. In the case of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, these two rails exist, and they do meet, but only in the mind of God. We have in Scripture the teaching of both rails. For example, Acts 13, verse 48. I read it last week. As many as had been appointed to eternal life, there's the sovereignty side, believed. There's the man's responsibility side, all in one verse. Matthew 11, verse 27, Christ says this, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Jesus said that. The only one who will know the Father is the one that the Son, I, the Son, reveals to Him and wills to reveal that. And in the very next verse, what does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Both sides from the words of Jesus, in the words of Jesus. Acts 20, verse 21, salvation is clearly called, it's repentance toward God. It's faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's man's responsibility. Even here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we've seen that God, that Paul affirms the doctrine of election. He says his choice of you in verse 4, but then in verse 6, he puts it in terms related to the believers of what they did. In verse 6, he says, they received the word. And in verse 9, it says, they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And true evangelism is calling people to that. True evangelism is not preaching the doctrine of election. True evangelism is calling people to believe and to repent, to turn. We can't completely reconcile these two sides. And that's okay. It's an example of God's transcendence. That's why Paul, at the end of chapter 11 of Romans, after writing in chapters 8 about the sovereignty of God and, and, and the God's eternal choices in, in chapter 9 and his burden for the Jews and their future in 10. At the end of 11, I mean, this is all he could say at the end of all that. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Who can search out his judgments or understand his ways? How unsearchable are his judgments? How unfathomable are his ways? By the way, just another side point, this is another proof that Scripture was inspired by God. I mean, if it's just human authors, they'd get together and fix this thing, you know, through some edits before they do another printing. 
The tension's there. Leave it. Number nine. Well, there are times when I have doubt. Someone might say, there are times I give in to sin. I know what I'm really like. I must not be elect. I must not be chosen. Well, doubt can be due to a variety of things. Doubt can be certainly due to having a, 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 a lack of grounding in, in some important biblical teaching. Doubt can be due to some besetting sin in a person's life. It can be due to just exhaustion with the battle itself, but the fact is living a holy life will always be a battle, and the Spirit's always going to war against the flesh. And a Christian is always going to be longing to live out what he can't, what she can't, perfect holiness. So can we mature in it, though, in some way? Can we learn how to battle sin more effectively? Yes, we can. But here's something else that goes along with that maturity. We also are learning more about what sin is as we mature. And therefore, we grow to recognize it even more and even more readily in our lives. And therefore, we can also feel even worse about our sin. So assurance of salvation is not based upon our feelings. And just one more thought there, too. We're not, as I've said, we're not challenged in Scripture to preach the doctrine of election to the lost world. We're not challenged in Scripture even to just make this our focus all the time. What Scripture keeps drawing us to is a focus on Christ and on the many biblical commands related to our spiritual growth. This is how we grow. Focus on that. Number 10, last one. Do you have to believe in the doctrine of election to be saved. There's someone I love, someone in my family, someone I work with, a close friend. There's someone I love who professes to be a follower of Christ, but I know they hold to some Arminian teachings. Can an Arminian be saved? It is important to make something very clear here. Believing the gospel message and trusting in Christ alone for salvation is not the same thing as believing in or understanding the doctrine of election. Or for that matter, any of the other five points of the doctrines of grace. The reality is there are many doctrines and aspects of biblical teaching that a person may not understand when they first come to Christ to be forgiven of their sin. Frankly, most, if not all, of the believers who attend here at Twin City, and I haven't surveyed the whole population of the membership here, but I will tell you, last Sunday I did, I did canvas our care group. And so that was a good snapshot of the rest of the church. Most of the believers who attend here came to Christ as an Arminian. And then a point came after their salvation when they were taught more accurately. They began to grow. They began to more fully understand what Scripture says about all of this. That was certainly my experience. It was my wife's experience. We were raised more in an environment, a church environment, that didn't really teach these doctrines at all. We had been converted to Christ for several years before 
a particular pastor, and I remember it as if it was today. And it's been 40 years, I guess. A particular pastor on a Sunday afternoon after lunch patiently and lovingly showed us what Scripture says about all these things and about God's sovereignty in salvation and about election and so forth. And I had some of these objections and questions that I was throwing back to him. He kept taking me to Scripture and Pam to Scripture. And for me, that started about two months or so of spiraling down into depression. (laughs) Trying to explain it away and trying to wrestle with it. And I did have to wrestle with these doctrines for a while. But the end result was a point came that I had to admit that these truths about election and predestination were biblical. And that all this really is orthodox, historical Christian teaching. And so then it became just a matter of submitting to these doctrines and growing in my understanding of them. So the fact is that there are many truths about God and His attributes and His ways, many truths about man, about sin, about justification, about sanctification that we grow in through the years. The bottom line in someone being a believer is whether they've been regenerated or not, born again. It goes back to that. If God, by His Spirit, has given someone new spiritual life, then they have truly trusted in Christ alone, even if they are carrying on their lives in a shallow understanding or inaccurate understanding of particular biblical passages. And I will say, it is dishonoring to God to, to remain, intentionally remain in a shallow state and not grow and never pursue the accurate handling of His Word. But it's not damning to be an untaught or shallow Christian. Pastor John MacArthur puts it this way in one of the chapters of his book called The Gospel According to the Apostles. And if I remember right, it's in a section talking about sharing the gospel with children and how to lead children to understand the gospel and so forth. He makes this statement, but it applies to everybody. The primary factor in any person's coming to Christ is not solely how much doctrine he or she knows. The real issue is the extent of God's work in the heart. So the short answer is yes, an Arminian may be a true believer. In the same sense, a charismatic may be a true believer. Someone in Joel Osteen's church may be a true believer. I can go on and on and say things like that. I will admit, though, if a person is truly Pelagian, since Pelagius taught also that there was no atoning work that Jesus did on the cross. He just died to be a good example to us. If anybody is following Pelagianism, then they're believing heresy and they are not saved. And I'll admit something else, that if a person is stubbornly holding on to an extreme form of Arminian teaching, at some point... If they hear and see what the Scripture says and still holds on stubbornly to some extreme things about Arminianism, then I think at some point it is right to question their salvation and to pray for them. But let's just be careful 
as we hold to solid biblical teaching, let's never minimize the significance of or stop having joy over some simple, simple biblical thoughts like this one. Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. One more thought. Believing in election doesn't save you either. Just touting your knowledge of the doctrines of grace doesn't mean you've trusted in Christ either. Well, that concludes our look at the doctrine of election. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4 then. All of that was introduction for two weeks now to the sermon in these last few moments. There's a couple more important terms in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4. Important concepts here. Two more aspects of the Christian identity. We are the chosen ones. That's part of our identity. But it's not all. Paul addresses the believers in Thessalonica in verse 4 as brethren. This reminds us that true believers are part of a family of brothers and sisters, even though they may all come from different sectors of society and from different backgrounds and may represent a variety of different ethnicities. What they have in common is not something physical, not societal, not ethnic factors. Instead, they're each equally chosen by God and equally born again. And that means the Christian community is not just a normal association or organization or a club or a guild. The church is a brotherhood and sisterhood where family love dominates among those who are all saying we have the same heavenly father who's adopted us. Listen to the words of Christ. It was in that moment, you know, when he was teaching and his mother and his brothers came to try to talk to him. And so I sort of envisioned that somebody went up and was tugging on Jesus' robe. Jesus, excuse me just a moment. Your, your mother and your brothers are out there. They want to talk to you. What did Jesus say? Luke eight twenty one. It's not that he didn't love his mother and his brothers, but he's making a point here. Luke 8, 21, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. All those who are part of the family. This is what bound the believers together in Thessalonica. They were all chosen by God before time began and then adopted by God in time and therefore were brothers and sisters of one another. This is a major aspect of our identity as it was theirs. And there's something else here. In the verse that goes along with the identity of being chosen by God. And that's being the beloved of God, it says in verse 4. God's true people are distinguished by this as well. By divine affection. That is, we are the object of his sovereign love. And as I noted a moment ago about John 3.16, this love is different than the love God has for the lost world of humanity. This love, when you press on the Bible about this love that he set on in his heart on those he would save, you find in Scripture that God's love like this is uninfluenced. There was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to attract or prompt his love. 
A.W. Pink said it this way, what was there in me to attract the heart of God? Absolutely nothing. But to the contrary, there was everything to repel him, everything calculated to make him loathe me, sinful, depraved, a mass of corruption with no good thing in me. And yet God set his affection on Pink, A.W. Pink, before time began. It's uninfluenced, and his love is eternal. He says it this way in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. His love is immutable because God is immutable. His love will never change. He will never add to his love for his own. He will never subtract anything from his love. And that's why in our verse, by the way, beloved of God is written in the perfect tense. It's a way of capturing it grammatically that in, yes, it began in God's eternal mind, but it, it's unchanging forever. It's infinite because everything about God is infinite. So back to that verse again. Beloved by God means that Christians are the objects of this special, even discriminating love. God does not fall in love with the elect. At some point in time, he didn't start reconsidering you and fall in love with you. He set his affection on you in eternity past if you belong to him. And his people will remain the eternal object of his love. Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an incredible thought we have. If we know Christ, we have this personal love relationship with the transcendent God of the universe. And that is our greatest need, you know, to know him, to know our creator. What's even greater need is to be known by him, to be accepted by him. It's one thing for you to say, I I know the Lord. Here's what's amazing. He knows you and he knows you intimately. He knows all your weaknesses. He knows your strengths. He knows your failures. He knows your successes. He knows your past. He knows your future. He knows you better than you could ever know yourself. He knows everything about you, and the amazing thing is he completely accepts you. As one writer has put it more than one, you are far more sinful than you think you are. And you are far more loved and accepted than you think you are. And of course, we can grow in our understanding of that. We can grow in our understanding and experience of God's love. That's why Paul prayed that for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3 verse 18. Here's what he prayed for them. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints... What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge? This is your identity. You're the chosen ones. The ones loved by God and therefore part of a family made up of all others who are chosen and loved by God. And it is remembering that identity, remembering who you are, that is a powerful motivation for seeking to live out a Christian lifestyle. Jesus said it this way, John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, 
but I chose you to go and bear much fruit. Live it out. Peter said it this way, 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Paul says it this way in Colossians 3 about how to live your life. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. As those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved. In other words, as those who have this identity of being the chosen ones of God, the holy adopted children of God, the loved ones of God, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. And beyond all these things, put on love. In other words, Paul's just saying, live according to your identity. And we even see here that love is the ultimate expression of that. No wonder Jesus told his disciples that night before he was crucified, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. There comes these moments in our lives where we must take what we hear and what we learn from Scripture and, yes, make a decisive decision. A moment of a fresh resolve and commitment, many moments like that, daily even, daily saying to the Lord, Lord, today I commit with your help to living out my identity today. Lord, it's today that I, I'm going to be what I am with your help. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this very poignant, needed reminder of how you see us from the sovereign side of things. Those who follow Christ are your chosen, the ones you set your affection on before time began the ones you've adopted into your family. Help us to take joy in that identity and resolve once again to live it out. We confess, Lord, our many failures and are so thankful that you are a forgiving, gracious God to your children. But I do pray for anyone here who may be in their hearts sensing the work of the Spirit, convicting them of their sin, convicting them of their lack of of love for Christ and the point, the fact that they've never really come to that point of resolve, of turning from living for whatever idols they've created in this world and the idols of comfort and success and money and happiness, and turn from those and repented of that and put their faith and trust in Christ. If they're feeling the stirrings of that, it's the work of your spirit. And I pray that you will complete what you've started to do. In our Savior's name, amen.